Go ahead and give me a thumbs up. There we are. According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Uh, let's get to Mark. Or uh, Luke. Let's do Luke instead. How about Luke? Luke chapter 9. This episode is found in all three of the Synoptic Gospels. This is episode 50 in the Galilean ministry, epileptic healed. Matthew 17, verses 14 through 21. Mark 9, verses 14 through 29. And Luke 9, 37 through 42. On the next day, when they came down from the mountain, a large crowd met him. And a man from the crowd shouted, saying, Teacher, I beg you to look at my son, for he is my only boy, my only begotten, my monogenes. And a spirit seizes him, and, it, and he suddenly screams, and it throws him into a convulsion with foaming at the mouth, and only with difficulty does it leave him, mauling him as it leaves. I begged your disciples to cast it out, but they could not. They could not. And we spent some time last week discussing uh, ability, what the ability that God supplies, and why is it that if God had supplied them with the ability, why did they appear now to not have the ability? We'll be back in that concept again here this morning. Verse 41, And Jesus answered and said, You unbelieving and perverted generation, how long shall I be with you and put up with you? Bring your son here. Uh, verse 42, While he was still approaching, the demon slammed him to the ground, threw him into a convulsion, but Jesus rebuked the unclean spirit and healed the boy and gave him back to his father. They were all amazed at the greatness of God. All right, and that takes us down through... This episode, when we get into 43 and following, we have the second time that he's tried to tell them uh, that he's going to the cross and they are having a hard time coming to grips with it. So we'll, uh, if we wrap up episode 50 today, we'll move on to episode 51 and get our first look at those verses there as well. Before we do any of that, though, we can't sit here out of fellowship. Let's make sure we're in fellowship. Take time for silent prayer. Prepare your heart for truth, shall we pray? Almighty Father, we thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you for your faithfulness in our lives day by day for our, our prayer meeting this morning. Father, what a blessing that was to go through the good shepherd, the great shepherd and the chief shepherd passages. Father, I thank you for our shepherding prayer meetings and I just rejoice again at how faithful you are day by day. I thank you now for this time of study and I ask for distractions to be set aside and I ask for your teaching ministry as the Holy Spirit guides us in the truth. And I thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, this event features the inability of the disciples to cast out a demon. This is a fairly well-known text. In fact, believers that maybe don't know a whole lot about the life of Christ, they know a few things anyway. They know that he walked on water and they know, uh, you know, a couple other things maybe. This is one I've kind of been amazed at with coworkers from years gone by when I used to work in the workplace. They would ask me about this passage. And I, I always remember thinking, that's kind of an obscure passage. I didn't think you'd be aware of that you know but for whatever reason it seems that this is a passage that folks are aware of even if they're not diligent bible students and i don't know if it's because this is a passage where a miracle didn't work this was a passage where god's power wasn't sufficient or, or whatever it was but it's a passage that has got people thinking at least and so i want to make sure that our thinking on this is uh 
is uh, is on target because this is not uh, a problem on God's end of things. The, the, the disciples were not able to cast out the demons, but that's not because God was insufficient. It's because their faith was deficient. And we're going to we're going to break that down for you in uh, in our message here this morning. So even unbelievers are familiar with this. We observe that while Jesus, Peter, James and John were up on the mount, the Mount of Transfiguration, Andrew and the remaining disciples encountered a spiritual battle of their own. They encountered a demon who was resistant to their casting out. They also encountered scribes that were resistant to their teaching, scribes that uh, were arguing with them in a not just a debate, not a discussion, an argument. Let's not mince words with it. It's an argument. And uh, it's kind of like husbands and wives. And they try telling their children, oh, we're just discussing, you know, no, we're not. <laughs> it's an argument. And that's what happens. So let's uh, at least acknowledge it for what it is. Thirdly, this is an appeal that's made on the basis of mercy. Um, wonderful applications of mercy and some doctrines and things that we've studied in the past. We saw that as well with the Syrophoenician woman. Under point four, we highlighted the sun. And then we went into all the details of the uh, synoptic gospels. We looked at Matthew's details, Mark's details, and Luke's details to examine this particular lunatic. And, extra credit, you now know the meaning of lunatic and you realize this is not a uh, medical condition. Even though the Harmony of the Gospels titles this epileptic healed, this boy's condition had nothing to do with epilepsy. It had nothing to do with a medical condition. It was a demonic affliction that had uh, physiological effects. It was not a medical condition. And uh, the boy was a lunatic, which had nothing to do with his mental health or his sanity. It had everything to do with the uh, demonic powers that wax and wane in their potency with the, uh, the, uh, with the moon. All right. Under point five, we focused on the disciples. And did I give you the A and B on this already? And then the frustration under point six. All right. The disciples had previously been given authority to cast out demons and to heal the sick. We realize from Matthew chapter 10 that when Jesus Christ gave them this authority, he was not giving them power. He was giving them authority in order to do this, that the expulsion of demons was not a matter of, of power. It was not it was not a uh, an issue of whether God's omnipotence could overpower uh, the, the demonic forces involved. It's not a power issue. It's an authority issue. Now, something we want to keep in mind, not only for this morning, but for some classes coming up in 1 Corinthians. If authority has been delegated, keep in mind that that does not, um, that does not go beyond what's been delegated. And it does not trump the one who delegated. See, We've got some issues where um, the Son is going to relinquish the, the kingdom back to the Father because all things were subject to the Son. But when it says all things are subject, it is evident that it is accepted that the one who did the subjection is, is accepted, that the Father did not submit himself to the Son. And then when the Father sub subjected all things to the Son, that was everything except the Father. And so when the Son returns the kingdom back to the Father at the victorious conclusion of the fullness of time, uh, we're going to learn some very... I think, vital principles for us to understand in our own stewardship. Because we, you and I, in the church, operate under a delegated authority uh, of the church. And so we want to understand what's been delegated, what has been undelegated or reserved 
for the father himself to deal with or for the son himself to deal with. And there are things um, that will go into where the father delegates certain work to the son. He delegates certain work to the Holy Spirit, but he reserves particular things to himself that he does not delegate. All right. Now, when it comes to casting out demons, it's not a power conflict between God's power and Satan's power. It is an, an expression of authority. However, in this instance, we're told, if you'll notice, um, actually, Luke is not a good gospel to uh, get this, so I'll just grab it from um, Mark, where we're told this kind. In verse 29, they asked, why could we not drive it out? And he said to them, this kind cannot come out by anything but prayer. Who do we pray to? We pray to the Father. That's right. That there, this was a, a particular rank of spirit, or this was a particular kind, genos, of, uh, of spirit. We don't know. Uh, we, we study demonology, but we don't have a complete breakdown of kingdom, phylum, order, genus, species on the angelic realm. We don't exactly know the different races or the different uh, species of, uh, of demon. But we do know that there are different types. This kind, this genos, this kind, is reserved for the Father's own expulsion, the Father's own dealing. That's why it says through prayer. And so the delegated authority that the Son had, the delegated authority that He then gave to the disciples, not that the power is insufficient, but that the delegated authority did not encompass this particular kind. This particular kind was reserved for the Father himself to personally deal with. And if that's not entirely clear, or at least that's sparking more questions than answers at this point, just jot yourself a note and chew on it for a while, and you're going to see some things coming up down the road. For example, in Revelation 20, when the Gog-Magog rebellion is destroyed, it's not Jesus Christ who destroys it. Jesus Christ is seated on the throne and the fire comes down out of heaven. And the Father is the one who does away with uh, that final Gog-Magog rebellion. All right. So we have the disciples under point five. We have the frustration under point six. Jesus becomes frustrated by his unbelieving and perverted generation. That's his generation. The generation he lives in. See, and I think every generation is convinced they're the worst. Right? You know, my parents thought that our generation was just horrible because of, well, I mean, it was, well, <laughs> but their parents thought the same thing, right? Their parents thought that, uh, you know, Elvis Presley was the Antichrist. It was going to bring, you know, you know what I'm saying? He was so worldly and so, you know, he rocked his hips and different things, right? And then my parents' generation, they start having their babies in the 60s, and we know what the 60s was all about, but... Every generation thinks that this is as bad as it can get. Well, I actually tremble. I wonder what my kids and grandkids are going to see if the Lord delays. Goodness. You think, is there, we're already in a society with no shame anymore. At least a generation ago they had public shame in some degree, but not anymore. Anyway, as far as the Lord was concerned... This unbelieving and perverted generation. No faith and a bunch of perverts. So, so it sounds like today. 
All right. And his ministry towards them was one of putting up with them. How long will I be with you and put up with you? All right. And I think that's a wonderful translation. I think that it's saying in the Greek there what it's saying in the English. You know, how long am I going to put up with you? Now, he's not sinning. It's not, it's not, you're not carnal. You're not, you're not out of fellowship when you get frustrated. You do get out of fellowship if you allow your frustrations to trigger mental attitude sins. All right. That's, and for some, maybe that's a short step. But the, the frustration itself is not a sin because Jesus Christ, of course, was without sin. He was spotless and blameless as he hung upon the cross. So we see the frustration. We see that the frustration is allowed to be voiced. The frustration is allowed to be voiced. And that, I think, is a valid principle. It's one that maybe we don't teach on as, as thoroughly as we, as we need to. Uh, as, as it says in the book of Job, the words of a man in despair belong to the wind. So, you know what? Let them blow off some steam. Go ahead and let them say whatever. If somebody is hurt, if somebody is frustrated, or if their soul is under attack, and they verbalize things, the book of Job says, in the, in the wisdom literature there, says, it belongs to the wind. Let the wind carry it away. And if you have any kind of grace at all, you don't hold it against them. <laughs> all right? Anything they say under those kind of conditions, the wind carried it away. I don't even want to bring it up ever again, as far as that goes. See? And, uh, you know, we're told in all this, Job did not sin with his lips. We're told that, you know, you can express frustration and not be carnal. It's what the book of Lamentations is all about. You've got five uh, laments there, five chapters of Lamentations. Several of your Psalms are individual laments or corporate laments or national laments. In in many ways, a lament is a way to voice the hurt and make sure that you keep it oriented to God's provision and not just plunge into a mental attitude of, of, uh, of anger or resentment or bitterness uh, because of what you're faced with. So he, uh, he vents a little bit here. He says, how long will I be with you and put up with you? He knows he's in his final year. He has survived his final Passover. The next Passover will be on a cross. So he's within a calendar year of the passion. How long will I put up with you? And so you see that there. Now, there is reward for putting up. There is reward for enduring. There is reward for considering it all joy when you encounter various trials. Um, it becomes his test and his work assignment to stay faithful throughout the whole process. But uh, it's not profitable for them, to, uh, for the crowd, to uh, be putting him in that position. <laughs> I don't believe there is a reward <laughs> at the judgment seat of Christ for difficult believers. All right. We went to you have, you have this passage. You also got Hebrews 13 that talks about this, that um, that uh, the shepherd needs to do this with uh, joy and not with grief or that would be unprofitable for you and so forth. Jesus stayed faithful with all the conflict and all that, and, and he'll be rewarded to the maximum. Other pastors, I think of what the colonel went through all those years and all the foolishness and bickering and garbage and stuff. Uh, things Ralph went through years and years ago where he had a, a denomination actually sue him to take control of his church building, things like that. You know, you just, you put up with stuff and you give it to the Lord and you pray and you endure and you stay faithful and, uh, and it's rewardable. It's rewardable. Um, but, uh, you know, you don't want to be, I wouldn't want to be a believer 
at the judgment seat of Christ who was the cause of this pastor getting so many rewards. Right? Because that doesn't mean that I'm entitled to anything. Right? Well, I should get something, right? I I gave him all these rewards. (laughs) No, I I believe there was wood, hay, and stubble there that you're going to watch go up in flames. All right. So anyway, there's more that we could do with that, but uh, for this morning we will let that go. Let's talk about the expulsion. The expulsion. And let me get back to Mark 9 here. Jesus uses the expulsion episode to provide instruction. Everything's a teaching opportunity. Jesus didn't just do miracles or show off. Say, hey, look at me. There's a teaching opportunity. Any work of power, any sign, Simeon, was supposed to be the credentials of the divine authenticity of the messenger so that you listen to the message. You recognize that the message came from heaven because the power behind the miracles came from heaven. Jesus uses the expulsion episode to provide instruction on faith to the boy's father. This, you know, the, the boy was the one afflicted, but the father was the one who needed the lesson. Ultimately, the disciples needed the lesson as well. They, uh, they had little faith. At least the father admitted it. The father admitted that he had a faith problem. He said, Lord, I do believe. Help my unbelief. At least he had the humility to identify that he was walking by faith and still struggling at the same time. Disciples didn't even admit that. You know, they're unsuccessful casting out the demon. In Matthew 17, 20, we're told because of the littleness of your faith, they had a deficient faith. (laughs) But... They were clueless as to the uh, deficiency there. All right, Mark 9, 22 through 24. Again, this is point A. Jesus uses the expulsion episode to provide instruction on faith to the boy's father. Mark 9, 22 through 24. And ultimately, the disciples. Now, um, he asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. It has often thrown him both into the fire and into the water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. I, uh, I used to think that was pretty shocking. I used to think that that question was pretty insulting. Right? If you can do anything. Here's the God of the universe. God the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who spoke and the universe sprang into being. If you can do anything, how insulting. And even in Jesus' reply, he repeats the words in a, in a mocking, offend, you know, in an offended manner. Jesus said to him, if you can. Right? I think if the ancient Greeks would have had bold face, italic typeset, they probably would have put exclamation points there, but they didn't have punctuation. Anyway, if you can. And this used to really bother me a lot. It doesn't nearly anymore the way it used to. Because this man verbalized what so many people mentally approach prayer with anyway. Just we're not so blatant about verbalizing it. But quite often, prayer life uh, can be pretty uh, pathetic if we are not praying with confidence. 
So often we're praying uh, for provision or protection or some kind of uh, spiritual priority or work assignment or whatever. And, um, and we have a deficient faith. And we're, we're, we're skeptical. And we shouldn't be. Absolutely shouldn't be. You know, we're praying for, as a, as a church, we're praying for two acres of land. We, we've got a, a budget. We've got a, an idea for 15,000 square foot of, of building and, and whatever else. Or maybe two 9,000 square foot buildings and, and whatever. And we're making that a matter of prayer. Well... What kind of prayers are we offering? Are we offering if you can do it prayers? Are we offering the prayers of, hmm, gee, you know, realize uh, a couple of acres is probably two hundred, two hundred $300,000 and construction's probably another uh, $600,000. That's, that's approaching a million dollars. That's a lot of money. Like our father can't afford a million dollars. You know, big deal. What's that? And uh, he owns the cattle on a thousand hills, we're told. So a couple of acres ought to be no big deal. The fact is, he'll move us when it's his design to move us, and he'll provide when it's his design to provide, and he'll do so so that Christ gets the glory and none of us can brag about it. And it may be that uh, the provision gets delayed until uh, uh, pastor and deacons and members and believers uh, finally figure out what prayer is all about, figure out what faith is all about, and actually give the glory to Jesus Christ for what he's about to do. Until such time, then uh, we can just keep waiting. So he says, if you can, if you can, if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. And Jesus said, if you can, all things are possible to him who believes. All things are possible to him who believes. See, the word can't should not be in our vocabulary. Can't is not a part of the Christian way of life for believer priests in the dispensation of the church. We are in the abundant life stewardship. We are in Christ. But the key there is faith. Now, hold your thought on that. Let's look back to Matthew 17, 20. See, the father here, before I, let's look at the father. Verse 24, immediately the boy's father cried out and said, I do believe. Help my unbelief. I do believe, help my unbelief. I do believe, help my unbelief. Now, does that seem contradictory? Is he a hypocrite? How can you believe and not believe at the same time? You guys are too smart. I don't even need to stand up here. All right. Now, is that too small? (coughs) There we go. That's a better size. I can't possibly study with text that large, but I can present it in the auditorium with text that large. All right. So immediately the boy's father cried out and said, you have the euthus, immediately, Mark's really big on euthus, kraxos ha pater to padiu, the father of the boy, elegant, saying, and he says one word, he says pistuo, 
which is I do believe. I am believing right here. Pistuo, just one word. So immediately cried out the father of the boy saying, Pistuo. Jesus said, all things are possible to him who believes. All things are possible to the Pistuo believing one. And immediately the fathers cried out, Pistuo, I do believe. I am believing. Now it's a present active indicative verb indicating ongoing activity in present time. Pistuo, I am believing. I do believe. I am believing. I am exercising faith, we might say. But then he immediately follows the Pistuo with Baithe. And uh, this is what I was going to look up here. Uh, help my apostia. You put alpha in front of pistia and you've got unbelief. Right? Pistis is faith. Pistia is faith. Apostia is unbelief. Now, the help here. By that. Oh, that's the verb I wasn't familiar with. Now, it's also a present indicative. Uh, not indicative. It's a present tense verb. It's an imperative. It's a command. So you have a present indicative, I do believe, paired up with a present imperative commanding God to do something, commanding God to help. All right. So I do believe I exercise faith. I am believing. Well, at the same time, the imperative comes, the demand, the prayer request, help. Present active indicative from Baitheo. If you want a strongest number on that, it's number 997. Present active indicative. Ba'etheo. B-O-E-T-H-E-O. Ba'etheo. Handful of passages, looks like. Ah, including Hebrews 2.18. Since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. That's ba'etheo, coming to the aid. So, um, we have here the pairing of belief Still with the need of help. Help my unbelief. It's not contradictory at all. It recognizes that faith is a variable quantity, shall we say. Faith is a... Is a um, it's an operational function like hope and like love. And it can grow weak. It can grow weak. All right. I have more to say on that here in a moment. Let's get over to Matthew, Matthew 17. At least the man admitted that he needed help. The disciples, when they were all clueless, trying to figure out why couldn't we cast out this demon, the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, why could we not drive it out? Could. Notice, could. Why were we not able? Why did we not have power? Due to my power. The disciples came and said, why could we not drive it out? And he said to them, because of the littleness of your faith. Oligopistia, and we'll bring that up there as well. Because of the littleness of your faith. Ha delegeo tois diatain oligopistion humon. Now it's not opistia, unbelief. It's not unbelief. The man said, Help my unbelief. 
It's not apostia, it's oligopistia. Oliga. You ever heard of oligarchy? Oligos? Oligos means little. An oligarchy is ruled by a, a small number, a privileged few is an oligarchy. Pretty much only pay attention to oligarchies in uh, college level poli sci courses and things like that. But anyway, um, and it's, I don't think there's another English word, common English word that uses the oligar. Is there? Oligar. Really? Okay. That's in common usage? Daily conversation? Oh, okay. Well, that's my problem. My common usage is I'm in the wrong place. <laughs> All right, oligopistian. So it's not an unbelief. It is a little faith. It is a size uh, comparison. It is, it is a deficiency. And if you combine the two passages, I think you can come to a conclusion or you can come to at least a hypothesis that would bear out under other scriptures that you bring into examine um, that when you fail... To get God's help in your unbelief, what are you left with? You're left with little faith. You're left with oligopistia because you're trying to do it on your own. The, the man, the father at least, was humble enough to say, I do believe, help my unbelief. Because if you fail to get that help and all you're left is with your own faith, it's going to fall short. It's going to fall short. I think if any of you lacks, let him ask. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask who gives to all generously without reproach. If any of you lacks, let him ask. And uh, I think the man here with help my unbelief is, uh, is a prime example for where faith can be provided for there by the asking on the basis of prayer. All right. All things are possible. What's the point B? All things are possible to him who believes. All things are possible to him who believes. Now, do you have to believe on your own? No. The Father will help. Increased faith is provided. The fruit of the Spirit is faith. So, time spent in fellowship will produce faith as a fruit of the Spirit. Beyond that, faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. So, the more consistent you are in Bible class, your faith will increase. And then, as we pointed out, prayer is there for the asking. Help my unbelief. And the provision of prayer there in the basis of um, uh, being anxious for nothing and letting your requests be made known, the peace of God that, that surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And so you've got abundant faith provided, provided there as well. All things are possible to him who believes. All things are possible to him who believes. Now, I think if we uh, want to focus in on this possibility here for the moment, let's not confuse possibility with certainty. Let's not confuse possibility with a, a puppet or turning God into a puppet or a marionette and somehow if we just have enough faith, we control God. And we tell God who to heal what to provide, how much money we want, and all the rest of that. All things are possible. does not mean that all things are done. 
I think uh, we, we were looking at Daniel 4 the other morning and, and the uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego before Nebuchadnezzar. And Nebuchadnezzar said, bow down and worship the statue. And they said, no. And, they, and Nebuchadnezzar said, well, I'm going to throw you in the fiery furnace. And the three boys there said, well, that's all right. Our God is able to deliver us. Able. That's like possible. Okay. He is able to deliver us. But even if he doesn't, we still are not going to bow down and worship your idol. And that phrase there, but if not, in Daniel 4, I think it's verse 24 thereabouts. But if not, that's the recognition that all things are possible. But he may choose to do something else. We need to have that faith in our prayer life that all things are possible. And we may have our preference. And our preference is certainly possible. However, the Father may choose something better. Because in his plan, he's providing the maximum glory for Jesus Christ. And what we think is preferable is actually a diminished glory for Jesus Christ in the overall plan of God. You know, we, we were praying for Byron. We didn't know what the Lord was going to do with Byron, if he was going to leave Byron on this earth, if he was going to heal the colon cancer or not. Now, was it possible? God was able to. Certainly could have. Chose not to. Does that diminish our faith? Not at all. Because we still understand in faith all things are possible. So there's a distinction between what's possible and what is decreed and what is certain and what is uh, profitable. Ultimately for the maximum glory of Jesus Christ. And we make that a matter of prayer. I think we can see that. Point C then. Present faith... Present faith still needs help. Present faith still needs help. In order to prevent unbelief from regaining control. Present faith still needs help. In order to prevent unbelief from regaining control. Remember, the dog returns to its vomit. If you are not walking by faith, if you are not filled with the Holy Spirit, by default, you and I return to the flesh. And that's the nature of it until we leave these bodies. Paul talks about it in Romans 6 and 7. Who will set me free from this body of death? That if we, that's why we're commanded to walk by faith. That's why we're ordered to walk in the light. And we can tie in not only Mark 9, 24 with uh, Romans 4, 19 and 20. Let's look at that. Romans 4, verses 19 and 20. <coughs> Present faith still needs help. Nothing wrong with asking for help. Is it, is, it, is it immature? Are you a weak sister? Rapture sissy? You know? No. You're supposed to ask for help. We're commanded to ask for help. The Lord asked the Father for help. We're commanded to ask for help. The Father wants us to ask for help. He is glorified when we do ask for help. We've got the... Uh, 
example here of Abraham and the promise. Of course, Abraham is our father according to the faith. And uh, faith is, uh, is, is an activity, but it's not a meritorious it's not as a non-meritorious activity. It's not counted as a, as a uh, work. It's credited as grace. As we're told in verse 3, Abraham believed God. It was credited him as righteousness. Belief, in response to belief, belief is the trigger. Belief is the condition that the Father established would then be the basis for the provision of righteousness. And that's what takes place here. Now, the one who works, his wage is not credited as favor, but what is due but to the one who does not work, but believes. So right there, underline that. The one who does not work, but believes. Please, please understand that it's faith is an activity, but it is still not a work. It is an activity. It's a necessary activity. But it's not work. And so, what then is provided is not wages. What is provided is grace. And so we have the examples here. David, of course, recognizes this. He gets back to Abraham again in verse 9. And the fact that he was not yet circumcised when he was saved. And so we understand that God's plan is to save not only the Jews, but Gentiles as well. And different things down here about Abraham's faith. Now, when we get to verse um, 17... As it is written, a father of many nations have I made you in the presence of him whom he believed, even God, who gives life to the dead. He gives life to the dead. In all kinds of different contexts, he gives life to the dead. Abraham was willing to sacrifice his son. He figured, well, God will give life to the dead. Um, Jesus Christ, of course, rose from the dead. God gives life from the dead. Uh, Abraham was sexually dead at his advanced age. God gives life from the dead. I think that's the context of what we're dealing with here. Calls into being that which does not exist. In hope against hope, he believed. And I love that phrase, hope against hope. Because we have a living hope, although we live in a world without hope. The world provides no hope. And yet we have it all. In hope against hope, he believed so that he might become a father of many nations according to that which was spoken, so shall your descendants be. God made promises about his descendants. And here he is, 90 years old, no children. Well, 80. He did finally become a father at 84 with, uh, with Hagar. But notice the phrase in verse 19. Without becoming weak in faith. Okay? Now, there are pastors that want to pretend that verse is not in their Bible. And they want to teach faith as an absolute. You either have it or you don't. They teach faith like it's an absolute, black and white, on or off, pass-fail kind of grade. Now, we have a lot of absolutes in the Christian way of life. Don't get me wrong. Salvation is an absolute. You're either saved or you're lost. You're either in Adam or you're in Christ. Absolute. There's no partway kind of sort of halfway there. Filling of the Holy Spirit. Fellowship. You're either in fellowship or you're out of fellowship. You're either walking in light or you're walking in darkness. There's no kind of sort of halfway in fellowship. Right? Absolute. Absolute sanctification. Absolute spirituality. 
We've got a lot of absolutes in the Christian way of life. Faith is described in degrees of strength or weakness. That there are believers that are strong in faith. Stephen was one, full of grace and truth. Strong in the faith. He began to present his testimony there in Acts chapter 7. And uh, they put him to death for it. There are degrees of faith. And uh, I believe that comes not only with maturity, but even beyond maturity. There are degrees of, uh, of faith. And there are some believers that are spiritually gifted with a spiritual gift of faith. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. So without becoming weak in faith, how can your faith grow weak? How can your faith grow small? The disciples, their faith grew small. I think one thing that kind of shook their confidence was their inability to cast out this demon. Right? They, they uttered their command or they waved their hand or they did whatever their, uh, you know, I don't know if they had a particular hand motion or some kind of a incantation or phrase they used. or I mean, maybe they just had the, the old baseball, you know, you're out of here. I'm, I doubt it. All right. I think that thumb ejection came with baseball. But whatever they did, they had a mechanism. They've been doing this for some time. All of a sudden, it wasn't working. Well, what's wrong with our faith? What's wrong with our power? What's wrong with us? Where's Jesus? We've got to get Jesus back. And even, uh, you know, the scribes thought he wasn't coming back. And they were kind of surprised that he was. And, and uh, it really seemed in the spiritual battle there that the demons had the upper hand. Does that shatter your faith? If a prayer answer doesn't come the way you think it needs to come, you get a different answer than the one you were asking for. Does that shatter your faith? What causes faith to grow weak? See, this is where if, if you've got friends or loved ones that are in Pentecostal Christianity, and not even strictly the Pentecostals, a lot of the, the promise keepers, a lot of these, they, they get into this raw, raw uh, fervor, and they've got to keep their excitement up. And if something drifts, if something goes wrong, well, there's something wrong with them. What's wrong with them? What's happened to my faith? I don't want to confuse emotional states with uh, faith uh, potency here. But there is a concept of weak in faith. Just as there's a concept of strong in faith. There are degrees of faith. And some believers are stronger than others. Those with strength are not to simply please themselves, but to lift up and to bear the burdens of those without strength. That's how we come alongside. That's how we, we uh, bear one another's burdens in the Christian way of life. And believers with the spiritual gift of faith ought to be at the front of the line, helping to carry the load. So he contemplated his own body, now as good as dead, since he was about a hundred years old, and the deadness of Sarah's womb. So we have a double deadness going on here. All right. He's already passed his. This is what we call, you know, this is sexual death. He was too old and she was too old. Now, I don't exactly know about. There have been journal articles written about antediluvian menopause. <laughs> All right. Or even childbirth. If you're going to live to be 900, what exactly are your childbearing years? OK, we, we kind of got a, a grasp on it now when we live to be, you know, 80 or 100 or whatever. But when you were living 900 years, can you imagine how many babies are you going to have there? Kind of thing. <laughs> so we don't know. All right. 
We have no clue. Abraham lived to be 175. Sarah had a baby at 90. She lived to be 127, I think was her total lifespan. Um, so whatever point, we don't know if she was already through her change or whatever else. But what we do know, Scripture does describe the deadness of Sarah's womb. Okay? That much we do know. So we don't know how long it took or what age it hit or any of that. Don't need to know. We can just simply take face value for verse 19. They're both dead. Reproductively speaking. Yet with respect to the promise of God, notice, he did not waver in unbelief. Now, you've got a verb there for wavering and you've got the same noun, apostia, you've got unbelief there. So, there is a connection between weak in faith and unbelief. The, the, the prolonged unbelief, the wavering in unbelief, will actually weaken the faith. Yet with respect to the promise of God, he did not waver in unbelief, but grew strong in faith, giving glory to God. We have provision for a, a faith workout, as it were. How do you get strong in faith? How do you get strong in muscles? How do you get strong? Uh, how do you run a marathon, for example? You think it might take a day or two of training? Right? I'd do real well just to run down to Ethel's house. That would be, you know, that's seven houses down on the left. But that's, that's pretty good for me. Anything further than that, I'm taking the car. But if I'm going to run a marathon, we've got a marathon runner here this morning. If, uh, yeah, that takes some training. You've got to build up your endurance. You've got to build up your strength. Likewise with your faith. If you never exercise it, how strong do you think it's going to be? Yeah. It's like any other unused thing. Okay? Got to use it. Build up its strength. All right. So present faith still needs help. Help my unbelief. He did not waver in unbelief. And where do you find your help? I think this verse here clues us in the promises of God. You talk about the greatest help imaginable. That's what the faith rest drill is all about. You start cycling the promises of God. You start reviewing the doctrine in your heart, you have the promises you've hidden away in your heart. The reinforcement of that, the encouragement of the scriptures so we do not lose, hope, we do not lose heart. All right, and this is what he had the opportunity to teach. And, uh, and the father knew that. The father permitted this uh, kind of demon to get in there, and he allowed for the disciples' failure so that they could learn about their unbelief and all of that. I think it's very instructive that you learn from your fa failures early so that you can be equipped. One of the things I love about the Boy Scouts um, is, uh, of course, you know, I volunteer with the Boy Scout troop here in town. And the, uh, the boy-led structure of the Boy Scouts is designed where um, the, the, the boys are in charge. They, uh, they exercise their leadership. They develop their plans. They, um, and they are allowed to fail. They're, per they're permitted to fail. And uh, it's not that we set them up to fail or we hope that they fail or that we, you know, lay the stumbling blocks out there so that they do fail. But they have the freedom to do what they're going to do and to make the mistakes they're going to make. And they learn from them. Unless it's uh, a safety thing, you know, if it's going to result in physical injury or death or something. 
the adults, hands off. Hands off, whatever it is. Say, a patrol gets out there to the campsite and they get their stoves out. They start cooking their, their meal and they realize they, uh, they forgot to uh, bring the, the propane uh, gas tanks for their stoves. Well, you're not going to cook on the stove if you don't have the propane to, to fuel the thing. So uh, what do the adults do? We bail them out, go drive into Walmart, come back, bring them some propane? No. We go hungry. <laughs> we learn. We watch how they adapt. We watch, uh, you know, a dozen uh, scouts get busy and uh, building up that they cooked over an open fire. And uh, you make do and you learn. And then they've not done it again. <laughs> I tell you, every camp out, first thing on their checklist is how are we for propane? <laughs> All right. But you see, you learn from the failure. I believe these disciples learned from their failures. And that was part of their training. You know, I don't think Peter could have written First and Second Peter if he hadn't have denied the Lord. Talk about a failure. Three times he denied the Lord and, and uh, went out of there weeping. And this, you know, on the night he was betrayed. And here's Peter failing. But he learned from it. So, uh, anyway, important principles here on faith. Present faith still needs help. You get to the point where you think you don't need help. Yeah, yeah, you need more help than you know. You need a lot of help. <laughs> now the explanation. Two reasons are given. Point eight is the explanation. And it's good that it's in private. You know, the Lord didn't, didn't chew them out in front of everybody. But you have the learning opportunity in private to follow up, to say, you know, here's the way you handle it. Here's something to keep in mind for next time. The first is what we've already discussed, the littleness of their faith. Oligopistia. We're going to be careful with that. Um, the littleness of their faith. Oligopistia is number 570 in the Strong's Concordance. Not the only reason, and we want to be careful with it. We don't want to, again, um, come to the idea that God's a puppet, and if our faith is strong enough, we can make him do whatever we want. Wrong answer. Yes, we need to grow strong in our faith. And a weakness in faith will hinder our work assignment. No question. The weakness in faith on our part will hinder, will hinder our work assignment, whatever it is you're trying to do. Whatever your gift is, whatever ministry you're in, whatever your work assignment is, and uh, your particular ministry. Remember, everybody's in ministry. A weakness of faith will hinder what you're trying to do for the glory of Jesus Christ. But it's not the only item. The second item, and we'll look at Matthew 21 here in a moment. The second item, closely related, failure to pray. This kind can only be cast out through prayer. They hadn't even prayed about it. Couldn't imagine. Of course, we start every Bible class with prayer. We, we try to start everything with prayer. Um, before anything we do in the spiritual realm, we want to make certain that we're filled with the Holy Spirit, that we are properly oriented to glorify Jesus Christ, not be caught up in our own ego or our own uh, 
things than what we think we're doing for ourselves. I couldn't imagine going to battle against demons without praying ahead of time. <laughs> Checking to make sure my armor's on and whatever else. Or at the very least, maybe I did go into battle without praying ahead of time, and then I did the ejection maneuver, and the demon was still there laughing at me. I think I, now I'm getting some serious prayer. <laughs> at this point, they didn't even do that after the fact. They were just grumbling about how come it didn't work? <laughs> and getting into arguments with these scribes. See, they should have just told the scribes to stand back. And we got a prayer meeting going on. Failure to pray. All right, we see this in Matthew 17, 20 and 21. I also want to relate it over to the prayer application in chapter 21. The disciples came to Jesus privately and said, why could we not drive it out? Why were we not powerful enough? Why could we not? Why did we not have dunamis power? And he said to them, because of the littleness of your faith, because of your oligopistia. For truly I say to you, if you have faith the side of a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible to you. Notice again, possible. All right, all things are possible. Or nothing is impossible. Again, you're dealing with the realm of potential in terms of what God can accomplish through answered prayer. Then verse 21, but this kind does not go out except by prayer. And then a lot of manuscripts add and fasting on top of that. Do you have a footnote there for verse 21 or is it in brackets or anything? You got brackets around? Okay, yeah. There, are, there is some question as to whether it, it belongs in Matthew, whether it was borrowed from Mark. I think it is legitimate. I think it belongs in Matthew as well as Mark. In any case, that is a, a text criticism exercise. You can examine the manuscripts and, uh, and work that out. It is Matthew 17:21 in the Masoretic text. I'm not Masoretic, majority, majority text, which is what that M is all about right there. The... Uh, Nestle Alon critical text puts it in brackets and leaves it as a but they mark it as with a C grade which is their most uncertain grade it's almost like a flip a coin grade which is I think kind of kind of cheesy let's look over at chapter 21 now see the other passage where they put this into a prayer application this is where he withers the fig tree and they're all Amazed, seeing this, the disciples were amazed and asked, how do the fig tree wither all at once? How do you do that? Right? Uh, you know, what kind of superpower is this? Can we get this kind of power? No. And Jesus answered and said to them, truly, I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt. Now, is that redundant? Is that repetitive? Why does he say it twice? It's actually two different statements, but they do go hand in hand. If you have faith, on the one hand, and do not doubt, on the other hand. Is it possible to do both? Is it possible to have faith and doubt? Yeah. That's like this man, I, I do believe, help my unbelief. I do believe, I'm walking by faith. Remember, faith is simply, faith is not an absence of doubting. Faith is the placement of a confidence, the placing of a trust. Unrelated to whether you doubt or not. 
The goal is, of course, is to have faith, place your trust, and not doubt. Accomplish both activities. So truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what was done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, be taken up and cast into the sea, it will happen. All right. This is the faith that moves mountains. And again, there's a size issue involved. Size, uh, faith the size of a mustard seed. So it doesn't have to be very much. Mustard seed is a pretty small seed. And then the key in verse 22, all things you ask in prayer, believing you will receive. The key there in your prayer life is that faith has to be an integral facet of your prayer. Now, it's not name and claim it. It's not the faith claiming and, and making it so because you want it to be so. Again, believing doesn't make it happen. Believing is the placement of trust. See, we get this idea that believing means I think it's going to happen. I believe that 2 plus 2 is 4. Now, I know that 2 plus 2 is 4. I believe, I place my trust in the uh, promise of God. Now, did, uh, did God promise, I'm using Byron a lot just because he's been with the Lord now a week and a half, and, <clears throat> and it was such a, a prayer thing for, for a year and a half now. But did God promise, see, this is what I'm talking about with faith. Because faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Believing is placing a faith, placing a confidence and a trust in the promises of God, the God who makes the promises. Now, did God ever promise that Byron was going to get healed? No. So believing in the promises of God while praying for Byron is not. Do you see what I'm saying here? It does not mean that I believe I'm convinced I am. Uh, I've made up my mind that Byron's going to live. That's not what believing is. You, you can convince yourself of an unreality. Right? That whole world full of Muslims that have convinced themselves of an unreality. And they believe it. Does that make it true? But that's where their confidence is. They're confident that they can blow themselves up and go catch some virgins or whatever. Okay? Now... I want you to understand that when we, when we teach all things you ask in prayer, believing you will receive, you've got to understand what believing is. You've got to understand what the... Um, you can't take this in isolation from other passages that, you know, if you ask for something apart from God's will, is he going to hear you? No. All right. Anyway, like I say, you guys are way ahead of me on this. Finally, the last thing I'll say here... This kind of demon, this kind, and we assume he's a demon, he's called a spirit, uh, demons are spirits and fallen angels are also spirits. I think uh, with the insanity, the mindless insanity of this one, I think it's more likely to be a demon rather than a fallen angel. But there, too, we've got all of these different kinds, species, as it were, genos, uh, in the Latin genus. This particular genus of demon 
supplies us, provides us a remarkable observation regarding spiritual genera. That's the plural of genus. All right. If you're not big on Latin. I'm not either. I had to look it up. Spiritual genera. How many different species of principalities and powers are there? We don't know. We know that there are principalities, powers, rulers and authorities. So that seems to be four different classifications there. How does that work? Are they different races? Are they different colors, different shapes, different number of wings? We've got cherubim. We've got seraphim. Okay. We know that Satan was a cherub. He was the Messiah cherub from Ezekiel 28. And is it possible to get promoted? If you're a faithful cherubim, can you become a seraphim? And go from four wings to six wings. Remember, Clarence was just trying to get his first pair of wings. The theology of Jimmy Stewart. Yeah, that movie's got some problems, and you probably know that already. All right. But this kind of demon, and I'm just going to leave you with this to think about. We don't have the answers today, but down the road, if... You know, it's been on my mind for some time that, of course, I'm still a young guy, but someday down the road, um, I, I truly want to do an exhaustive study on angelology, on demonology. I, I really think that, uh, you know, the, the copyright on Merrill F. Unger is, do you know Ethel? I mean, it's like, didn't he write in the 30s? Earlier than that? Okay. Back in the 50s. Okay. Yeah, he'd written probably in the 40s, I'm thinking. Anyway, but there's been nothing done to exceed Unger. Everything written on demons since then has referenced Unger, has depended on Unger. But to to my knowledge anyway... The theology on planet Earth has not gone beyond Merrill F. Unger in biblical demonology. And that's unfortunate. For 50 years, 60 years, there ought to be something beyond what Unger has done with it. Because he, he concluded with a lot, with more questions than answers. And he put a challenge out there for the next generation to build on what he'd done. And no one's done it. So if... Uh, you've actually heard Merrill F. Unger. That is amazing. Ah, I wish I was older. Okay. Goodness, I wish I was older. Oh, well. Okay. Let's uh, wrap it up here. We'll dismiss in prayer. We'll come back next week to get to episode 51, where once again, he's telling them about the cross, and they don't want to hear it. He says, I'm going to die. They don't want to hear it. They willfully don't understand what he's talking about. Father, thank you for the truth of your word. Thank you for this class. Thank you for this time together. We thank you in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.